This is Jamie Laidlaw, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Oh no, we're, we're not supposed to be seeing the ocean right now. This is not good. And I'm way more proud of the decisions I made where I turned around than, you know, where I made it to the summer. You are tuned into episode 4.8 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, it's the middle of January now, and things are getting pretty real in terms of uh, the riding getting better, as well as avalanches becoming more of a problem in many places throughout the western United States. I hope everybody's doing their best to make conservative decisions out there and and stay safe while riding and playing in the snow. There have unfortunately been eight fatalities this season already um, in the United States, and six of those have been in the last two weeks, just from the first of the year. Um, Unfortunately, I believe four of those happening on New Year's Day. Um, So, of course, our thoughts go out to the friends and the families of those affected by those accidents. Do your part to read the forecast, learn from accidents and near misses that are happening, and just put good conservative decision making in your plan for the day. Stay safe out there, everybody. Big thanks to TAS by MND and 10 Barrel Brewing. Um, go check out 10 Barrel's list of events. There might be something super fun coming to a ski area near you uh, or go check out their new podcast called fully aligned it glimpse gives you a glimpse into the inner workings of 10 barrel brewing it's a it's a hoot of a podcast super fun to listen to those guys know how to have a good time so go check that out here we are in 2020 and one of my resolutions for the podcast is i'm going unscripted for the intro and the outro so it's going to be a little bit more raw. You'll probably hear me uh, mess up every now and then. But hey, this is an organic process here. So uh, let me know what you think about the more unscripted intros and outros. have to give credit to my lovely wife, Stephanie. She wanted me to, she wanted me to try and do this. So I'm giving it a shot. Um, let's see. Today on the podcast, I'm super excited to share... Uh, an interview that I did with Jamie Laidlaw and we did this last uh, it was probably in March I guess in the Ruby Mountains at Ruby 360 Lodge Jamie Laidlaw is a, a former ski patroller a guide and educator professional skier he's had his hand in 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 many pots so to speak um, and all around great guy great guy to talk to great guy to ski with 
um, I was I was pretty stoked to be able to do a little bit of guiding with him. Um, he did a, a little bit of a, a victory lap, but he's, he's since moved on since from Ruby Mountain Heli, but he came back to fill in for a week, and it was great to catch up with him. So um, we talk about lots of stuff about some of his skiing career, uh, his guiding career, his ski patrolling career, and some lessons he's learned along the way. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Jamie Laidlaw. Here we go. Jamie, thanks for making the time to be on the show. I've uh, I've waited a long time to meet you. I have to say, um, it's been great to ski around with you and guide with you the last few days at, at Ruby Mountain Heli. Um, you exited Ruby Mountain Heli as, uh, as I entered Ruby Mountain Heli, and I've been hearing your name for many years now, and and the legacy that that Jamie Laidlaw left here. So. Um, it's been great to meet you and, and uh, stoked that you could sit down with us and, and give us some insight as to your, your life and, and some of the expeditions that you've, you've uh, been on um, recently. Yeah, no, it's been absolute pleasure getting back here, skiing with you and uh, really uh, seeing the evolution of uh, Rude Mountain Heli skiing here. And uh, I think you guys have definitely upped the ante and taking it to places that we'd really only dreamed of. It's awesome. I mean, I think you guys are uh, doing a fantastic job here and it's fun to finally get back and ski around with you guys and uh, kind of soak it all in. It's yeah. Inspiring. For sure. Well, big thanks to Mike and Joe and Francie and the whole Ruby Mountain Heli crew to let us throw down a track tonight. Um, Jamie, why don't you introduce yourself and, and give us kind of your, your background, how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the small town McCall in the West Central Mountains of Idaho. And, uh, you know, much of my youth was spent ski racing. And I was uh, a decent ski racer, um, but never fantastic. But uh, my folks got into backcountry skiing and, uh, you know, just I kind of followed suit and started going out with them. Originally, they kind of put me on some of their equipment. So I was in some Merrill super comps and uh, leather boots and some probably 210 skis. And they gave me a set of snake skins, which were just probably the most god awful invention ever for uh, backcountry skiing. And I despised those and uh, that setup. So I ended up finding uh, these contraptions called Alpine Trekkers, um, which might be well, second most god-awful invention ever for backcountry skiing. <laughs> but uh, they got me into the backcountry and uh, I just fell in love with it. And I was out there with my, you know, GS skis with derby flexes and my plug boots. And, but I was out you know, able to get out there and have a good time. Uh, but I ended up deciding to go to school back East and, uh, try and ski race there. I went to middle Middlebury college and didn't, uh, quite hack it there. Um, I did all right, but, um, I ended up stopping ski racing, I think my sophomore year. Um, but I think what my time in, uh, 
Vermont really taught me was, uh, one, some, it gave me a really strong technical foundation, just learning to ski ice. The funny thing is, uh, my coaches didn't even let me train gates for like an entire month. You know, they're just like, man, you need to free ski and figure this stuff out. Cause, uh, obviously you haven't spent too much time on ice. And, um, it really gave me a foundation, uh, technically for my skiing to, you know, which helped me later in life with, uh, expeditions and whatnot. But, um, yeah, after, well, actually while I was at Middlebury, uh, I was a geology and environmental science and geology major. And we had this thing called J term and uh, a lot of people either took a course or did internships. And I persuaded my thesis advisor at the time uh, to let me do a snow science uh, internship. And I tried to get a snow science internship at Alta and I got shut down and I had met and made friends with uh, a former Ruby guide in McCall, my hometown, and his name was Whitey. And uh, he's like, man, you you really should uh, call Joe Royer and see if you could do this internship in the Rubies. And I just thought, oh man, there's no way. Like being a, a guide, a heli ski guide was not even on my radar. I just didn't think it was remotely possible. But, um, you know, I think it's all being right place, right time. And, uh, and also having certain people knowing the right people and having them vouch for you. But I essentially came to the rubies for a month and, uh, Joe told me, I can't promise you, uh, much as far as doing a ton of snow science, but, um, you know, come out and work for me and see what happens. And I came out and had a great time and, uh, you know, mucking out fuel tanks and doing all the stuff that the behind the scenes work and the setup work that happens with uh, setting up these heli ski operations. And there's just so much more than you'd ever expect. And Joe offered me a job at the end, but he um, said, you know, if you want more experience, I can give you a recommendation and uh, you can go do some patrolling. And so I thought that sounded uh, rather prudent. And so I headed to, uh, as soon as I graduated, I moved to Salt Lake City and headed to Little Cottonwood Canyon and took an OEC class and uh, worked my way onto the Snowbird Patrol there and worked there for a few years. And uh, before moving uh, and uh, coming to the Rubies and Really, uh, you know, Jimmy Collinson and uh, Mongo and Randy Trover were huge mentors at Snowbird. And I think what that really taught me is, um, you know, you just get to see a lot of snow move. And uh, you're not digging pits. You're not doing a lot of snow science. But just watching snow move is one of the most educational things I think you can possibly have. And to throw explosives and say, I think that is the trigger point, you know, and you get direct feedback and that's just something you don't get. Um, otherwise, you know, and so, and I think that's a really challenging thing with, uh, the avalanche industry is just like, there's this lurking hazard and it's, 
you never know how close you get. And if you get to throw explosives, you get that direct feedback. Like, yep, I was right. You know, that, that was the spot. Um, but then I uh, came to Ruby's and had uh, both uh, Joe Royer and Tom Carter were, you know, I, I feel like I had the greatest mentorship I could ever hope for. Um, and under their tutelage, you know, I just, I had a great career here and, uh, kind of in the shoulder seasons though, when I was in Salt Lake, I started ski touring every day off I possibly had. And, uh, you know, eventually tried to up the ante and we went to Alaska and, I went there with a uh, friend, BJ Brewer and Dana Drummond. And uh, we, BJ and I were on a river trip. We did the uh, Tachinchini River and we were sitting in uh, Alsek Lake and we were looking out at the Fairweather Range and we we're like, man, we need to come back and visit this place. Like that looks like amazing skiing. So the following year we came back, um, Pilot Drake dropped us off up on the Grand Plateau and we decided we wanted to climb and ski Mount Fairweather and, you know, maybe a couple other things in the area. And, uh, we gave ourselves a month. So we just, and it, it was hilarious. We, I mean, I had no idea how to shop for a month, you know? So we showed up in Haines and just started loading shopping carts full of food and went up there. We got dropped off. And then the first 10 days were just this insane blizzard. And, uh, then, and I got the flu and I was sick and we were shoveling out and it was just that typical Alaskan expedition experience. And, uh, we got our first day of blue skies and we're like, oh my God, we got to go. And so we climbed and skied Mount Fairweather. And then we wake up the next day and it's blue sky again. And it's like, oh my God, you know, and, you know, and so Mount Fairweather has some of the worst weather on earth essentially. And, Despite you know, the name. Yeah, despite the name, exactly. And so, uh, you know, we were only expecting from that month to have maybe five or six really good days. And we ended up having a week of bluebird, you know, conditions. And we just ended up climbing and skiing everything within sight. And so all of a sudden we're, you know, a little over halfway into our trip and we're like, oh, shh. Shit, what well, now would he, what do we do? And so uh being extremely arrogant and ignorant, we decided that we heard some local mountain guides who obviously had a lot of local knowledge had skied from Mount Fairweather back to Haynes. And we were just like, Well, if they can do it, we can do it. And uh we were essentially armed with one map that had um it was a one to 250,000 scale map with 500 foot contour intervals. And we're like, screw it, we're doing it. So Drake ended up dropping off another group. We loaded up all of our extra equipment and we set off. And uh, luckily we had the weather held because otherwise we would have been totally screwed because we ended up getting lost. We did a 30 mile detour. We ended up, you know, on some pass looking out at the ocean being like, Oh no, we're, we're not supposed to be seeing the ocean right now. This is not good. So, but, uh, 
that was kind of my first uh, taste of ski mountaineering and expeditions and kind of said, came away from that being like, wow, you know, this, this might be something that I have a knack for. And uh, yeah, and that just led into a, a bit of a career and I was able to be fortunate enough to work with Dinafit, work with North Face and have some phenomenal partners along the way and do uh, expeditions all over the world, the Arctic, the Andes, Himalaya, whatnot. But, um, and then, you know, continue working in the rubies and, uh, worked here for almost 10 or 12 years. And, uh, what I learned here was amazing because I was able to come from this environment where you're <clears throat> surrounded by professionals, analyzing snow, having these amazing discussions, and then you go on these expeditions. And, um, I think it's a, a huge reason why hopefully, you know, I stayed safe and came back because unfortunately a lot of friends didn't. And, uh, yeah, but now I'm back in Idaho and I do some avalanche education and the occasional ski touring guiding. I like hikey skiing and I pretty much all my, uh, skiing is uh ski touring now. So love it. And maybe the occasional sled ride. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, I'm definitely the, the snowmobiling is definitely one of the, uh, more humbling experiences. I'm, you definitely go from hero to zero in a hurry. Um, but, uh, the throttle can be addicting though. Too. Yeah. Yeah. The nice thing is, uh, you know, where I live, um, snowmobile is a tool to get to a, um, a lot of the terrain we want to ski, but, um, and so the, the better the rider you are, the more terrain you can access. So there's a, you know, a lot of motivation to really improve your riding skills. And it's fun just because, you know, you get, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but it's, uh, it's fun to be involved in sports where you're constantly improving. So yeah, I love it. Yeah. Look, looking for that next level is, is always fun. Um, so Jamie, uh, one of the unique things about ski guiding in the Ruby mountains is we don't have a forecast center. We don't have a bunch of observers out there giving us information on, on, on instabilities, snowpack structure. There's, there's basically no information coming in here. And, and all that we have is the information that we gather. And the, the, we have a lot of slope testing from snowmobiles in Lamoille Canyon, especially, um, but we, we do not have a, a, a forecast center. And so one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about this evening is the correlation between working here and not having a forecast center and going out on expeditions into remote areas where you know perhaps nothing about the snowpack and how you safely assess the snowpack and then step into terrain, especially when you're objective skiing with ski mountaineering. Yeah. You know, um, that's a fantastic question. Uh, so I am someone who likes to simplify things as much as I can. And, uh, you know, so in a lot of our courses and, uh, the cool thing is a lot of the courses I teach up in McCall with pay at powder guides, you know, a lot of our courses, when we start uh forecast, isn't available yet. And so um, we ended up having to create our own forecast, even in our level ones. And 
you know, this is nothing new, but um, we basically boil it down to four questions. You know, what's our avalanche problem? Where is it both in the terrain and within the snowpack? Um, what's the likelihood of triggering it? And what are the consequences? And, you know, these are concepts we all <clears throat> know and learn, but we try and drill those four questions into our students. And, um, and what I think our students are really uh, surprised to learn is that you don't have to actually, you know, dig a ton in the snow and start poking and prodding it and tapping on it. Like if you keep track of the weather, you know, and which I think is a phenomenal thing because this is incorporated much more into the new airy curriculum, which we teach, but um, you know, having a, a history of the snowpack or a history of the weather. And cause the weather directly influences what's happening in the snowpack. And if you're good enough, you can look at a snowpack and recreate, you know, the, the weather for that entire season. I've seen Collar and Zacharias do it when he comes here, you know, he would say, Oh my God, you know, he would, I'd be in a pit with him here at the rubies and he would start pointing out all this stuff. And I was just you know, like mind blown, you know? And, um, so, um, for me, interpreting the snowpack is infinitely complex. It's like trying to understand weather or climate change without these supercomputers. You know, it's we, there are absolutely scientific processes that are happening, but our pea brains can't really wrap our minds around it. So I try and simplify things as much as possible. And Going back to those four questions um, and, you know, what's the problem? Where is it? Likelihood of triggering and consequence um, is super helpful. And then having some, uh, you know, historic weather data to fall back on. And, and that's exactly what we would do on these expeditions is, you know, you show up into a place in terrain that you've never visited with a snowpack you've never seen. And, um, and it's a huge problem because objective skiing, you know, it's, it's the exact opposite of what we're teaching in our classes, right? We always teach that you, you need to have all these options and no, I'm traveling halfway across the world because I want to ski that, you know? And so I think you're already kind of setting yourself up for failure and some, you know, instance but um but i think if you keep on falling back on you know trying to really answer those questions um it's it's been hugely helpful for me um jamie talk a little bit about uh how you utilize terrain progression in an expedition setting to to gain confidence in what you're forecasting for well, an interesting thing is depending on the, like where you are, like, so like an in expedition to the Himalaya, you know, you might be there for two months. So you, you do get that, um, you know, that weather history, you watch that slope or that feature for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. And it might start off as, um, you know, alpine ice. And then slowly you get these warm storms that, you know, lay in snow and, whatnot. Um, and, uh, so that's hugely helpful, but yeah, the terrain progression is huge. Cause you know, you, you need to 
slowly bite off pieces of terrain that you're comfortable with and that you feel that you can manage given your knowledge of the snowpack, which is, you know, not much. And then, uh, you know, you slowly progress and you just start stepping out. And, uh, and it's the same concept that, you know, I use in the backcountry at home, but it's just on a much greater scale. And so, you know, initially I will just go cruise around out of avalanche train and make as many observations as I possibly can. And then, you know, and then you start wading into um, a little bit steeper terrain and on aspects that you are most comfortable with. And, you know, and it's just slowly gathering information. It's the same process that we would do here in the rubies when we first show up, you know, it's like, you know, it's that, you know, if we're talking strategic mindsets, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're gathering information and then you're slowly stepping out, you know, and, um, and the hard thing is, is if you don't have the time to do that. And I think that, um, you know, when you're really crunched for time, you, you make shortcuts and we all know that humans were horrible at, we're, you know, so subject to making shortcuts and, um, so I think really to have a successful and a safe expedition, you really have to give yourself the time to really gather the information and, um, yeah, figure it all out. It's a huge puzzle, you know, and like I, I always use the analogy of, um, you're trying to figure out what this puzzle is and you're trying to figure out the picture, you know, you can't figure out what that picture is, whether, you know, you know, it's some underwater seascape, you know, with sharks and whatnot, whatever, but you can't have just one piece to that puzzle and know what it is. Like the more pieces, the better the idea you have of that big picture. And so it's just gathering information. And it's the same too, you know, being in an area like the rubies with no forecast or being, you know, at home in the West Central Mountains before we have a forecast. You just have to gather as much information as possible to give you as many pieces to that puzzle so that you have as good an idea as possible as what that big picture is. Well, and then being open to uh, timelines and not really painting yourself into a corner, right? Not being hell-bent on on an objective at a certain time period, you know, like like... The snowpack and the weather dictates what you need to do. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Um, you know, you know, as a prime example, we were talking earlier. Um, we got to ski my first day skiing with you guys. We skied a run called Double O here, which is one of our absolute classic runs. It's bread and butter. It's just one of my favorite runs in the entire range. My last year here, we had a thin, shallow snowpack and. We didn't ski it the entire year um, and we kept throwing explosives. We kept digging pits and, um, you know, we kept coming back to, and in my mind, it just always fell back on snowpack structure. Like we're not getting results, but I cannot trust the snowpack structure. Like we just can't do it. Um, yeah. I think that being overly objective based can be a problem and, I think it was a bit of beginner's luck. My first handful of expeditions I did, I was super lucky. I mean, I had fantastic conditions. I went to Peru and I 
was able to climb and ski a bunch of things that had never been skied, you know, and some of the best ski mountaineers for generations had been going there. And it's not that I was more talented than them, but I just happened to show up on a really good year and I was young and dumb enough to go for it. Um, but then I went through a series of expeditions after that, where like my success just kind of plummeted. And, um, in all honesty though, I found those expeditions where I didn't quite reach my goal. Um, you know, those are a lot of the expeditions I'm most proud of because the decision-making process and, you know, everything that I had to go through, it was a lot more challenging and um and i'm way more proud of the decisions i made where i turned around than you know where i made it to the summit and so yeah i think those are the the hard the hard wins you know like you you won those ones and um uh well and i think you learn way more about yourself in the process because when you when you make it it's a tick off the list but you know, we're all fairly egotistical. So you when you don't make dejected, it, right? yeah, like, and you just brood on it and you'd like think about every little thing that you look at it as a failure, but it's actually a success. Yeah. And it, t- it, it, sometimes it takes some time to see it that way, but I completely agree. And the cool thing is, is if you don't reach your goal, you tend to be far more introspective about the entire endeavor and that's when you learn. But if you reach the goal, you kind of high five, you know, drink some beers, you know, tick that one off the list and move on. But I mean, I'm, there's always a learning process, hopefully, you know, if you're not learning, then something's going to go wrong in the future. But it's definitely not the same as when uh, you come home with your tail between your legs and you spend the next six months trying to figure out what happened. Right. Jamie, care to care to share a story of of a time that you feel like you got away with it? Yeah, man. You know, looking in hindsight, I I think a lot of times um I kind of got away with it. Um so <clears throat> after my after my Alaskan expedition, the next year I went with Dana Drummond, um, who was with with me in Alaska, we went to Peru and uh, went to the Cordillera Blanca. And rather than hang out in tents and snowstorms, the idea of being in mountain valleys that were free of snow and cultural experiences seemed really nice. And so we went to Peru and uh, I didn't really realize, you know, I mean, the mountains are absolutely terrifying. I mean, still to this day, they can kind of give me shivers, but um, we kind of showed up and uh, unfortunately, Dana ended up getting really sick. And so I ended up just taking off and soloing all these peaks, you know, and soloing in terrain, you know, upper 50s, you know, mid 60s even, terrain and uh you know actually one time i was skiing the west face of toklarahu which had never been skied before and i was skiing down and um dean if it's gonna hate me for saying this but um what can happen is um if you 
over flex your ski. So I was making jump turns, you know, on 64 degree terrain and literally one turn at a time because I was just terrified. But um, you flex the ski and if the ski was flexible enough, um, when you released, you know, that camber, the, um, the ski would arc in the opposite direction and your pins could release from your heel. The side note is I've skied all the uh, most technical, you know, hardest terrain ever in my life has all been on DinaFit equipment. Um, but what ended up happening is my pins released, I landed, and then my pins ended up on top of my heel welt of my boot. And so here I am stuck on the side of a 64 degree slope with 1500 feet of relief underneath me. And I had, and so here I'm like, okay, now I've got to figure out how to reach down and rotate my heel piece, lift my heel, rotate it back and step back in. Cause I don't feel, even though I was skiing with my toes locked, I did not trust not being, you know, locked into my heels. And so, um, yeah, and I had whippets and I realized that they're about the most worthless things ever. You know, I tried to plunge, you know, them in and they gave me no security. And so, um, and here I am like every muscle fiber in my body is just screaming, trying to hold on to the, um, side of this hill and, uh, and somehow I was able to do it, you know, and, uh, but I mean, I easily could have slipped and fell and that essentially would have been it. And, you know, and so it was in interesting. So I came down and I, I had a, uh, a very spiritual come to Jesus moment by myself in my tent. And I just kind of realized that, um, you know, uh, I think getting out there and doing things, I mean, not that had anyone ever been there with me, they could have done anything. I was able to change my, like I started skiing with, um, ice axes holstered in my pack. I always skied with a pack that had, um, you know, uh, like a harness waist strap. Exactly. But on the pack because with the pack it holds it a little bit higher so i could actually ski really well and then i could plunge or you know swing a tool and get clipped in and it, it so i changed my whole system of how i skied um and my safety but uh that was definitely a situation where i feel 50 50 could have gone either way and uh and then it also made me realize that um while i've uh I definitely done a number of things solo. Um, I, I find the most enjoyment and I get the most fulfillment about out of, uh, trips when you get to share them with people. Jamie, when have, when have you been surprised by snow or avalanches? Like what, what, what has caught you off guard either in <clears throat> on expeditions or while ski guiding or ski patrolling just, you have any stories to recount about that? Yeah. You know, I think we talk about it, but I think it's one of the hardest things. Um, radiation is one of the things that has uh, knit me in the butt and I think is the hardest thing to convey, especially to newer people in the avalanche industry. So 
I was patrolling at Snowbird and it was my last day of work before I came here to the Ruby Mountains because um, I would, you know, we start here kind of middle to end of January. So I'd patrol at Snowbird November, December, January, and then I'd come here. And so there are a lot of human factors, you know, at play here because, um, you know, I was about to start ski guiding and basically taking people through the mountains and free skiing was about to be over. Right. And so it was my last day. Um, I got to ski. I was just like a dog off leash. You know, I was just wanting to ski everything in sight. And, uh, we ended up opening what was called the, it goes in the mineral basin. It's the Chamonix shoots. And they did control work that whole morning, um, in the Chamonix shoots, um, and no results. And it was the first time that the Chamonix shoots were open that year. Um, and we ended up having to wait. Alta was a little slower on their control work. And we, you know, cause it's part of Baldy, we have to, they open them simultaneously or actually Alta would open theirs a little earlier to allow their guests to kind of get to the top at a similar time. <clears throat> and so they asked for people you know, volunteers to go open. And of course I was like, yeah, me, I want to go. And so we went out there and as we were hiking up there, I was hiking up there with some good friends, patrollers. We were talking about our favorite lines. And I, uh, I liked this line. I don't even know if it has a name, but it's kind of this shoot that opens up onto this, uh, little hanging snow field and you do this dog leg and then there's another shoot, you know, that you kind of straight line out. And my two friends on patrol dropped two other lines and had great times and they radioed up. I wasn't even going to ski this line. They're like, hey, Jamie, that line that you were talking about was looking really good. So I ski over to it and I look down and, you know, the surface is all sequined and it looks nice and cold and everything. And um, about half an hour earlier, 45 minutes earlier, the sun had come out and we hadn't seen the sun in probably a week or so. And, uh, we hadn't seen any avalanches either. And so I ended up dropping in and my first thought was like, Oh my God, that there's a lot more heat in the snow than I anticipated. And on my third turn, the entire slope just released. And, uh, I ended up blowing out my knee and going for a big ride and Luckily, I was able to fight my way kind of above the lower chute. And instead of getting taken over the cliffs, I fought my way above the lower chute and got taken through it and ended up being fine other than a knee. And it was also the probably the best avalanche I've ever been involved with because I ended up meeting my wife, but, <laughs> but so it all ended up working out, but, um, but radiation is something that's always, um, and I remember Colin talking to me about this in, uh, here at the rubies and, you know, him just talking about these surface whore events when he was guiding up in, uh, Canada for CMH and just these surface horror layers that were totally unreactive, 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 unreactive. And then all of a sudden they have their first main radiation event and, you know, you have these huge cycles. And actually my friend, Marty Rude, who owns Party, Pay It Powder Guides and I had a similar experience where we were taking some day skiers out, 
hadn't seen sun for a long time. We end up skidding to the top of this ridge and we're having lunch up there because the sun comes out and all of a sudden it's freaking almost t-shirt weather. So we decide to have lunch before dropping in on the slope. And then I go over to look at it and the entire thing had released, you know, and while we were having lunch on the, you know, up on the ridge and uh, yeah. So I think, yeah, radiation is something that I think we don't pay enough attention to and has definitely opened my eyes several times. Yeah, I, I think especially rapid radiation, right? Like when, yeah. it, when it comes on quick, you know, it's it's one thing if it's if it's gradual, and and, and I have a similar experience from ski patrolling at Solitude, where we we had shot the the Fantasy Ridge route, um, uh, plugged that full of plastic, and then there may have been like a one or two shots that we didn't shoot because we were, we weren't planning on opening the ridge and then the sun came out and this was, this is probably 07 or 08, I guess, uh, January. And we were totally surprised, you know, caught off guard. Um, but yeah, that, that, that certainly. Yeah. And I, in my <coughs> mind as a, as a time that I was caught with my pants down. Yeah. And when we, snows like people don't like change right and especially rapid change and once once the snowpack's been you know subjected to some stress you know it it's often either failed or it hasn't and the next time you subject it to that stress it's much less likely so yeah i you know those initial yeah rapid radiation or significant radiation events especially if it hasn't been there you know if it's kind of like we're dealing with right now here in the rubies beautiful skiing but you know having sun every day been there done that so um the snows seems, has seems that, like it's 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 often uh related to early winter events you know like, exactly especially with cold snow yeah. i totally agree yeah um you know you have that cold snow and you get that radiation and you create that densification, you know, at whatever depth, five, 10 centimeters. And it, because of that densification, it creates increased creep, which mm -hmm. creates this huge amount of shear within the snowpack. And so, um, which you're more likely to have those weak, persistent weak layers <laughs> earlier. Absolutely. Winter. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. I think, just taking the mentality of being a lifelong learner and um, having that constant curiosity about your surroundings is, you know, the greatest attribute you can have as, you know, an avalanche practitioner or a backcountry user. And, uh, you know, I, whether it's, you know, we we're talking about geeking out on tracks that we're seeing in the snow and it's just like constantly engaging in your environment and, the people who are the most observant, they're the ones who are going to miss the least amount. And that's one thing I noticed with Joe here, Joe Royer. He is hands down the most observant person I've ever been in the backcountry with. Like he sees things without looking <clears throat> if you catch my drift. And, um, and so, yeah, I think the more people go out with this general curiosity and just wanting to interact with their surroundings. Um, the more they're going to pick up on these subtle signs and 
Um, Because there's always signs and symptoms that there's instabilities, right? Very rarely is it just totally out of the blue. And so, you know, if you're curious about your surroundings, then you're going to notice those small little cues and you're going to be a lot safer person out there. And moreover, you're just going to get a lot more enjoyment out of being out there. So that's not a story, but I think that's my my biggest takeaway that I've learned over the years is just love the process. There you go, folks. Sage advice from Jamie Laidlaw. Listen to the silence. Jamie, thanks for taking the time tonight. No, it's pleasure's all mine. Thank yeah, it's you. It's been fun hanging out and skiing with you. Yeah. Get a couple more days. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, Caleb. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that episode there. Uh, speaking of Ruby Mountain Heli Ski, I'm leaving for Ruby Mountain Heli Ski to start guiding here in just a couple days, and they have a really good special going on. I know heli skiing isn't for everybody, but if you're one of those people who enjoy it, and, and maybe you got a big Christmas check or holiday check um, from some rich uncle or aunt or grandmother or grandfather somewhere and it's burning a hole in your pocket rmh has a great deal going on right now uh, to fill some seats in our first three three-day tours and that starts january 20th runs through january 29th and a significant amount has been cut off of the bill for those first three tours um, so check it out you can go to helicopterskiing.com for more information and of course give those guys a follow on the socials uh instagram they are at ruby mountain heli um come ski with me be great to have you out there it is shaping up to be a great winter in lamoille nevada um things are starting to turn on there so come check us out big thanks to of course our sponsors tas by mnd and 10 barrel brewing as well as interwest insurance Uh, The music on today's episode featured a new artist that I just found called Ketza. And in the beginning of the hour, we were listening to the hip-hop instrumentals, number one and number two. And taking us out of the hour is Dusty Hills. And these tracks were provided through the Creative Commons license and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. So if you have any music needs, go to freemusicarchive.org. And there's a ton of great, uh, great tracks there that you could use for whatever sort of project you're drumming up. Of course, our artwork was done by Mike T. You demand T. Um, give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. And if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. If you think I should change something, email me. I want to hear from you. Uh, I've been getting quite a bit of community involvement lately and really excited where the podcast has gone in the last two weeks actually we hit a big milestone hundred thousand plays since the start of the podcast i don't know that might be small potatoes for some people but it's a big deal to me so thank you to all of the listeners out there Um, please tell a friend spread the word and if you have a story to tell uh, this is this is this could be the place to do it if you have a story of a close call, an accident, or just good decision-making you want to share it with the community, 
hit me up. Check out the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Um, I think that's about it. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.